3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis That's and current man. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to yeah. late 30am. Good morning all. Morning Idwin, morning Judith. <laughs> Good morning. Yeah. Good to be back yeah, for another year. Yeah, you will notice, um, Wednesday listeners, that we're replaced with Will today. Unfortunately, he can't make it. And we've got Judith and Dean back in the studio. So, yay! <laughs> well, we thought we'd have a full house, but we're, we're still, we're going. And, and, uh, and Will wasn't feeling great this morning. So, yeah, mm. just a shout out to Will and take care. Take Feel care. better. Yeah. Summer, summer breakfast is finished, essentially. As a summer, summer programming is finished. Yeah. And I'll just do the shout out because Will's not here. But um, throughout the summer programming, Tuesday breakfast in particular has done absolutely fantastic broadcast with its summer school uh so if you guys missed that somehow um over january i suggest you go back and listen to their podcast because it was just absolutely phenomenal it was it mm. was just great yeah so much fun yes yeah and um so obviously you've been here <laughs> judith is this your first show back too it is oh okay yeah. yeah i guess we've got a bit of catch-up to do what, yeah. did you, what did you guys get up to well just quickly before mm. we answer that did any of you guys get to the uh, January 31 deadline for help opting out of your health record? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I opted out last year. I yeah, opted I out last year. October. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did get a few stories on that to keep <laughs> us informed. Yeah. Well, I, I went to the doctor the other day and she said, oh, do you want your my health record? And I said, no, I'm opting out. Oof. And I didn't get around to it. <gasps> so I've been looking because I was I was under the impression that you still could any time. No. That, I don't know, actually. They made a couple of changes. Yeah. There. I'm mm. not sure. Yeah. yeah, I was just looking. I was trying to find that just to mm. allay everybody else's um, <laughs> fears, you know. Um, well, you yeah. report back next week, do you? I will. Don't yes. you worry about that. I'll get <laughs> yeah. onto it. Um, but, yeah, that was a good good break, you know, after 11 months of uh, uh, broadcasting and uh, finding out all these interesting <laughs> things. You know, obviously we've spoken to Greg last year, who's going to be our first guest today, Greg Denham, talking That's to right. us about pill testing. Um, mm. Yeah, it's always good to, to come back because 3CR broadens the mind. Otherwise, you'd just be numbed by all the other... bit stagnating. Yeah, mm. mainstream media. Did you guys um, have to ask, did you guys start off the year well with your, your Happy New Year? You know, I had a quiet... Oh. New Year, but I had, I had a, a wild and wonderful <laughs> party up. in Sydney before that. That's so. a good point. That's a good yes. point. But I did um, do something really special, I felt, um, in January, and that was uh, on uh, January the 26th, Survival Day, um, mm. Bayesian Day. I went to a concert, Zoo Twilight's concert with um, Archie Roach oh. and, uh, and Briggs. Mm. And at the very end, they brought on um, AB Ori- Trials, so AB Original, and mm-hmm. Birds, and uh, Echo Vandal, and it just kind of was an amazing event. And especially 
moving to see Archie wrote, I mean, he just feels so much like the elder statesman. Mm. And he told some great stories mm. and, of course, the music. So that was that was pretty pretty special. That was probably the highlight of my January. Nice highlight. Um, I have to admit, my highlight was probably New Year's Eve. Uh, I had a fantastic New Year's Eve. Um, my mom doesn't believe in New Year's Eve parties, so I don't ever go to parties. <laughs> but um, my friends and I went to a bar and we got a free cheese board. Oh, that's Free good. cheese board, good way to start the year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the actual board or the stuff on the board? The stuff on the board. Okay. We got yeah. there and the guy was like, mm, sorry, ladies, there's no more cheese boards with closed kitchen. And then he kind of comes around and he's like, okay, this is kind of gross, but someone ordered a cheese board and they haven't eaten a single thing on it. Would you like it? And my friend was just kind of like, bring it over here. <laughs> let's do this. Let's get into it. <laughs> the, the reason I say that is that for Christmas, we got a, oh, an actual, actual cheese, cheese board. board. <laughs> but it's, um, it's, about one and, it's about 90 centimetres oh long and about 60 centimetres wide. You guys wide. eat a lot of cheese. That's well, a pinch. <laughs> yeah, it was handcrafted by a friend because oh, we always entertain and my partner likes cheese. I don't know what people who like cheese. It's just cheese. You know? No, Come no, on. no. Don't What's even, the difference don't even between go, blue no. and tasty? No, it's the same thing. Sacrilege, sacrilege. See, Dean, I follow that. I'm lactose intolerant, so it's a bit of a... Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, no. Well, well it's not a cheese, on a cheese roll here. I just want to say my lovely neighbour knocked on mm. my door yesterday. And she's begun working in a, I think, a cheese distributor. I didn't get the details. What, <laughs> yeah, uh, what I heard he just started was eating. she had a whole round of daffinois. Oh. You know, that got a response yeah. from all you cheese skeptics. <laughs> and she gave we me just a get quarter. told about it. <laughs> <laughs> and she gave me a quarter of it. So she she's promised that, you know, there could be more. Ooh, yeah. See, I think we all ooh at the, the fancy name. Yeah, we know it's it, French. We know it's also, French for yogurt. Yeah. We know also from the, the fact that we like, have, like, cheese people in our lives. That we have to say ooh, because yeah. otherwise they'll go. It's good. It's good. Well, <laughs> interestingly, a good friend of mine who's from King Island has opened up. I'm not going to no. plug her business. She's um she she's done cheese all her life, so she's oh opened up oh a God, shop a on um, Sydney Road. Um, Your partner must be very happy. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so we go there, and she gets a lot of cheese, and a lot of you know people come and eat it. But yeah, well, that's fantastic. Um, Shall we get on to having a look at what we've got on today's show? Yes, <laughs> oh, yes. yes. Um, we've got Greg in about seven and a half minutes. Uh, Greg mm. Denham talking to us about obviously, um, not obviously, but the, the health forum on pill testing at music festivals. We know that over the last four weeks we've been talking about what That's we've been, been doing, but and then there's the been you know yeah. parents who have had to hear that their, their, their kids have passed away due to um, yes. you know going to a party, and uh, so he'll give us an mm. update on that. Um, Lydia Griffiths, who's a program and events coordinator at Creativity Australia, is going to talk. She's going to talk to us about five community organisations around Australia this week who received a ten thousand dollars seed funding grant to implement inclusive community choirs. Oh, that's uh, great. No. Which is, uh, for me, it's quite personal. And then we've got at 8 o'clock Theo uh, and Thor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I'll uh, just explain. Um, Theo Karawajaya I interviewed yesterday. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just So just so they both, anyway, they, they are the co-authors of a, a paper on the Montara <laughs> oil spill and in particular the lack of media coverage of that. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, uh, Theo was the student who did his master's thesis on that, and uh, and um, Thor is the supervisor. So we'll hear oh, from Theo. Wow. 
and then we'll hear from Thor as well. Fantastic. Different yeah. angles. Um, and then we're going to be finishing off the show by talking to Jesse from the Northwestern Melbourne um, Public Health Network, which is a bit of a mouthful. I'm going to be saying it a few times more. Uh, and we're going to be talking to him about these two new tenders and this program around trying to target people suffering from social isolation and loneliness, which is being charted as actually a really quite a serious threat. Yeah. And that, that sort of ties in a little bit with this whole um, social inclusive choir and the mm. benefits of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so you know, it's just yeah. one outlet, but there's obviously other ways that people can uh, combat isolation and loneliness. I know last year we spoke to Sane at the end of, towards the end of the year. I think it was our last show, and it was really about um, how Christmas is all about self care. For people who are lonely, and it, and it you know yeah, can be yeah. quite we're a tough time. strategies in place. Mm. Yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely, for sure. Anyway, we're going to go into quick alternative news, and then we'll be into. Um, oh, actually, maybe we play a track instead. Hey, yeah, yeah. I'll do I'll do a community. Actually, I will go to a track. I am looking forward to hearing this. It is last connection. Um, yeah, great track actually, and we now have um, Greg Denham on the line, I think, from the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. And um, yeah, are you there, Greg? Yes, I'm here. Oh, yes, fantastic. Here. Okay, so um, Greg, I'm just going to introduce you for for listeners who may not have heard you before. You you you've become a regular. I think I think it's probably your third time on. So, but you know, it's always good to remind people, and especially it's the new year. So. <laughs> You're the, currently the executive officer of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum, and you've been actively involved in drug policy over 25 years. Is that fair comment? Yeah, that's fair comment. It seems like a long time, but um, like I'll go quickly. <laughs> You're a formal, former police officer, and you've got um, local, national, and international experience. I think you've done a lot of training internationally on harm reduction with police. That's right, yes. I um, was fortunate enough to be selected as a, um, a technical advisor in 2005, working with law enforcement um, internationally around supporting harm reduction programs, particularly needle and syringe programs to, to prevent the spread of HIV. Um, and it's really important that police support those programs because otherwise, um, if they don't, uh, those types of programs uh, can't operate effectively. Yeah, so what countries, Greg, were you in doing that work? Well, uh, I've worked in uh, most Southeast Asian countries, China, Vietnam, uh, Laos, Cambodia, um, Thailand, Myanmar, Malaysia. Um, so I've been very fortunate to um, have worked with uh, police yeah, uh, across the region. And, um, yeah, I've also done some work in Africa as well, Nigeria, um, Ken- Kenya, Tanzania. Yeah, yeah. So that would give you a really good overview of what's going on internationally uh, and um, I guess, you know, mm. spreading the word about uh, harm reduction. Yeah, look, it, it does. And uh, I was fortunate last week to speak at a seminar on the Gold Coast with uh, Griffith University that involved um, high-level uh, Chinese um, 
participants uh, regarding um, a range of issues to do with um, drug policy. And, uh, you know, there are some changes going on over there, uh, particularly around, um, you know, drug drug policy and drug treatment, which was interesting. So, um, look, there, there are changes happening. Malaysia, for example, uh, uh, is either going to or has dropped the death penalty for um, I, I drug I remember offenses. the death penalty mm. for, sorry, for... For drug trafficking offences. So... Um, so look, there, there, there is stuff happening and, um, it, it's a slow process. Um, but unfortunately, in some regards, other countries are going the other way, like Singapore, which uh, has introduced new laws, which are quite, um, draconian in terms of what information can be provided in terms of how to use drugs safely. So it's a bit of a pendulum which swings backwards and forwards, um, depending on where you are. So, um, but it, it, it's, it's certainly changing, but it's, it's a bit of a slow process. Yes, uh, it, and it is frustrating to feel like you know you've made um, you've gone forward in certain areas. And I think that, and then you then there are steps backward. And I think we could talk about Australia also, you know, as having gone through fairly progressive times around drug policy, and now um, you know, and and then going back. But I think we're beginning to move forward again. What's your sense of it? Look, I think we are. It's um, it's a challenging time though because um, I just looking. Um, at it from a former police officer's perspective, like I watch what's happening and look with interest in terms of the police response to these issues, and uh, certainly in terms of pill testing and uh, music events, music festivals, etc. Um, there's a bit of a pushback from police around um, pill testing, which um, is obviously a step backwards. Um, we would like to progress that that further, and and obviously have pill testing at, at these events. Um, but um, police um, are opposed to it. Um, the strange thing is, though, that their reasons for not um, allowing this testing are, are completely unfounded and uh, have no logic. So, uh, so do you mean they're, they're right. not based in research and the evidence? No, that's right. And I think it's mostly about protecting their territory, protecting their investment, and um, and trying to send again this kind of consistent just say no approach towards um, towards drug use, which of course is failing. So um, so I, I think that the, again we need to pursue this further and uh, and continue the advocacy and campaigning around pill testing and I think we will get um, a, a change in, in government policy. Um, Greg, I think last time when you, when you mentioned that, um, you know, European countries, including Netherlands, Switzerland, Austria, would, had already done it. It's a harm reduction uh, intervention. And you also mentioned that uh, in May last year, the Groove in the Moo Music Festival in Canberra had had the first government section pill testing. And, uh, uh, you know, the trial was a success in terms of reducing harms to festival attendees. After what's been happening in the last four weeks, you know, the arguments against pill testing seem to sort of maybe not be so strong. Yeah, um, look, uh, you're right. Um, last year, early last year, there was a, a pilot that was conducted in Canberra and it was quite successful. Um, the evidence showed that those people that had their um, pills tested, um, if they were found to contain a contaminant um, or a substance which is likely to cause harm. They were informed about that and uh, they decided to um, discard the, those drugs. Um, and, that, and that's the main message we want to get across about pill testing is that, um, you know, it, it, it's not a case of people being told that that drug is safe. I really want to emphasise that because it's not the case. And uh, that's unfortunately what police are saying, that pill testing um, We'll tell people, um, but it, we don't do that. Obviously, we provide peer education, um, clear, accurate results in terms of the um, 
the contents of those particular substances. Uh, um, Greg, can I interrupt you there, Mel, sure. because just to, to look at how it actually happens. So if I was at a, if I were at a, at a concert and I bought some pills and I'm thinking I'm going to be taking them, I've got them in my hand, and then I can actually, I know I can get them tested. What's the process? What happens? All right, there's, a, there's um, part of that uh, particular substance, that pill, um, is analysed by a gas chromatograph by a scientist, and uh, that gas chromatograph, and the police have got these gas chromatographs, there's, there's quite a few of them around. They're expensive pieces of equipment, but... Um, they um, they then analyse it. They then will give you um, like a it's like a spectrograph. It gives you all of the um, contaminants, all of the ingredients of that particular um, substance, and um, it then provides that information to um, the person who has to wait a few minutes for that particular process to happen. The then the then um, sorry the. Next step is for someone who is um, like a peer educator, someone who's um, obviously um, you know educated and well researched in the area of, of the, there's those particular substances provides information to the person like you, for example, if you are the person that's getting. Yeah, I'm waiting uh, for the information. Yeah, I'm sitting that's here. right. There is a bit <laughs> of a process around waiting. Um, mm. So, but people are happy to wait. People. Um, were very keen to find out what was contained. Um, most people want to know what, what it is they're taking and this research is backed up by evidence. Even um, people who purchase drugs from overseas and have them brought into Australia, um, they want to know what they're, what they're buying, um, what, what it contains. They want to know that it's safe and this is the issue that you know, we seem to be forgetting in this debate is that people want to know if they are, are taking a safe substance, regardless of what it is. So, so, so people are acting responsibly by yeah. getting the pill tested, or they're taking that's, yeah, that's, taking. That's exactly time. right. That's, that's exactly what they're doing. They're acting responsibly. They they don't want to um, obviously come to any harm, yeah. and uh, you know they um, they obviously would, would inform other um, people that they're with um, that you know that this particular substance or that particular drug has these particular um, harmful um, components in it. And and do you uh, have any information about, say I'm told or someone's told that there's something in there that's quite harmful, that's quite dangerous. Uh, Do you have any idea how many people will just uh, throw away the pill then or or do some people just take it anyway because they don't care? Yeah, look, that's a good question. Look, um, uh, David Caldicott, who is... um, uh, a doctor um, working out of Canberra who um, ran the trial in, um, in in Canberra at the Moo last uh, year. Um, he's also conducted similar research um, in Europe, and uh, it's around 70 to 80% of people discard that particular um, tablet once they find out that it's um, got harmful, right. you know, harmful ingredients. So um, it's quite high. Like, it's three-quarters of those that find out what's yes. in that particular substance. So people who will not then uh, risk either health problems or, or possibly, in the worst case, their lives. That's they, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that information is also posted. It's also provided to um, other people. There's um, like a notice board which um, has you know, pictures of um, drugs which um, have been found to contain you know, harmful ingredients. Um, so that information gets out to the rest of the people at that particular event. So it's an education process and... Uh, we know people are going to use those substances when they go to those events. And I have to say um, also that um, the majority of people that go to, the, go to those events um, and do use substances actually don't come into any harm or much harm. All drug use is potentially risky, but um, 
you know, um, including alcohol. Of course, <laughs> that's right. You know, the thing with alcohol, of course, is you, when you buy alcohol, they're not going to tell you that um, that's safe either. No one's going to say to you, "Oh, look, if you purchase this, you're going to be completely safe." Um, because, um, but they can tell you, "Okay, this is a percentage of alcohol. This is these are the ingredients." Um, in fact, there are warnings on alcohol as well. Indeed, in terms of, you mm. know, um, drinking whilst you're. Um, um, pregnant, all that type of stuff. So driving, etc. So that's the sort of stuff we're going to get across. We basically want to tell people, look, this is what's in this particular substance, and these are the risks if you take it. And, and I think you touched on it before. It's interesting. Uh, I was reading that uh, Andrew uh, Lieby, who was a, a Safe Work Laboratories member and a scientist, was sort of saying, you know, that the, that the pill testing services could leave consumers with a false sense of security that the drugs may be safe when this is not the case. And as you've said, you just want to educate people. But that's right, exactly. So uh, there are people who have a vested interest in maintaining the current regime around um, drug prohibition and, uh, you know, um, people who have a commercial interest in mm. that. And um, so we um, prefer to take, um, I guess, a more um, <clears throat> unbiased approach towards um, drug analysis and um, and provide just accurate information. And the, the other concerning part about this is that, is that police actually have that information. Mm. They can provide an early warning system, an early warning alert system, and there have been cases over the last couple of years when they have known about bad um, batches of drugs and not provided that alert. And that's really concerning that that information isn't being provided by police. And uh, I'd like to see them actually um, disseminating information to mm. the public about um, bad drug batches. Uh, hi, Greg. This is Edwin. Um, I, I guess touching on that, it very much feels like an us and them narrative. Um, I'm of the age group of, you know, going out to music festivals and that sort of thing. And there's a whole bunch of kids who really do support this idea of getting information out there, educating yourself on, you know, what you're taking at a festival. But, you know, especially the New South Wales government, at least within the these past months, have just been completely deaf to any sort of youth voice or, or voice surrounding it. I'm wondering, how do we change that narrative how do we first and foremost say okay this is about education and then kind of yeah change policy heads because policy heads are just shutting down anything and just going with the fear tactic i mean i've got people i know who go to festivals and they they see the police as you know this this enemy because they're having they're doing things like strip searches and and intimidation coercive effects is are we punishing people and that's you know it does that build a separation between us and them Oh, absolutely. Look, you're, you're right. And, um, that, those types of tactics going on at the Rainbow Serpent Festival recently in, uh, Victoria, where the local police have basically decided that they want to shut that festival down. So, um, and look, their narrative is very strong and it's very, um, focused, uh, and narrow around, um, illicit drugs are harmful. That's why they're illicit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they won't, um, enter into or, or, um, allow any other buy-in around a discussion of more informed, I guess, an educated discussion around um, drug harms. And uh, my concern is is that if this continues, there's going to be further drug harms to, to particularly uh, young people such as yourself who go to these festivals who just want to have a good time. Um, and they're using a substance which, um, for a variety of reasons, is illegal. And, and most of the time, it's not the fact that it is, is harmful because we know MDMA, we know cannabis, and there are even some psychedelics that are going to be used in therapeutic use. So for people to turn around and say, oh, they're illegal, so they're harmful, is mm. completely false. Well, well we and also, they it, do have a... yeah, they don't know the history also of those drugs and how they actually right. became illegal and the politics around that. Exactly. So there's lots of contrary evidence 
to these um, particular, you know, very short grab narratives that police and politicians are, are conveying through the media. Mm. Um, and it's very difficult to get that buy-in. With the injecting room in uh, North Richmond, where we were campaigning for that, you know, we had to use multiple strategies to, to get that message across. And it, in the end, it was um, the, the community that, um, I guess, Change the change the course of the conversation because it couldn't be ignored anymore. So there, there's there's you know recently a new a, sorry a new group um, started through students with sensible drug policy, which is um, you know um, young people who are getting out there and selling the message around you know drug policy reform and pill testing, uh, and that's where it's got to that's where it's got to be. It's got to be a community driven campaign to counter this um, you know, inaccurate and almost mythology that um, police and politicians are kind of conveying in terms of um, drug, drug policy issues. Well, Greg, that's, that's a, I think, a really good place to, to wrap up our conversation. And um, I think I'm, I know the Aero Drug and Health Forum will be keeping an eye on that issue, on this issue, but there will be lots more happening uh, in the future. So yeah. thanks so yeah. much for coming on this morning and, and Happy New Year and uh, all the best with all the, your great work. Thank you. Thanks, thanks very much. Sir. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And that was Greg Denham. From the uh, Executive Officer of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. And, uh, yeah, providing some really good insights into what the pill mm, testing definitely. is about. And, uh, yeah. We appreciate, like, you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know. It's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of her we can, yeah. I wanna be a better, better man, yeah. Because of her we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're gonna do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know? Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 When I first come to this jail, it was about 10 years ago, and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day, and... They call me Auntie Marlene, so it helped me recognise and realise and like, pull myself up like, yeah. They're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. It's 8.55am that you're on and it's just gone past 7.30. It's uh, time now to introduce our next guest. Um, community organisations recently, five community organisations around Australia, um, have this week received a $10,000 seed funding grant to implement inclusive community choirs. And this was provided by Creativity Australia. Uh, and joining us on the line now to tell us a little bit more about these um, seed funding grants and 
the benefits of uh, inclusive community choirs. We are joined on the line by Lydia Griffiths, who is um, the Program and Marketing Coordinator at Creativity Australia. Good morning, Lydia. Good morning, Dan. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us on 3CR. Um, I think for me, this story is a a little bit of a, a personal story. My dad was in a choir, um, which was formed in 1973. And what happened was, um, you know, it was during apartheid and it played a major role in in sort of, um, I guess, uh, bringing communities together. We know that singing in the choir is more than just a bit of fun. Um, today and in decades past, music has always been an international language that builds bridges of communication. Um, yeah. And without that choir, I would never have got the chance to come and live in this beautiful country. So I thought it would be great <laughs> to go. find out about yeah. you guys. Um, tell us a little bit about who Creativity Australia is before we find out about the uh, community choirs. Of course, no problem. So um, Creativity Australia is uh, we're a not-for-profit organisation founded by um, international soprano Tanya de Jong AM. Um, we basically bridge the gap between people experiencing disadvantage and um, those who are more fortunate through the neuroscientific benefits of community singing. And so that kind of means that we build supportive networks through choirs that help people connect to brighter futures. And ultimately, as I mentioned, you know, it's been scientifically proven too that it is good for your health from getting more oxygen to increasing blood flow, but more importantly, improving mental health. It really does, and you, you can you can actually physically see the benefits when you go and see the choirs or, or go and sing along. Um, the the actual active singing releases endorphins, so um, when you're singing, you naturally feel happier, um, and I think probably more connected to the people in the room that you're singing with, but without even really thinking about it. Um, my my background also is in music. Um, I grew up in musical theatre. And uh, when I moved to Australia about five and a half years ago, I kind of gave up singing for a bit. And um, it really did, it affected my mental health quite unbelievably, actually, how I'd, how I'd missed it. And you, you kind of don't realise, but when you start singing again with other people, um, just just that connection that you don't really feel anywhere else, really. <laughs> uh, and um, you've, you've been here maybe five years, but so you, you mm. would know of Australia's most famous choir, the Choir of Hard Knocks, which was yeah. introduced to the public in 2006. Can you tell yeah. us a, a little bit about the One Voice Choir and, and the grants that you've got happening, oh, and especially Absolutely. the five that have just been awarded? Yeah, so we've been, um, we've been giving out the grants for the last um, probably just over a year or so, I think. Um, and uh, the five new communities that so we've given out um, grants to Kyneton in Victoria. Um, or it's, a sil- it's a Victoria. silent E. <laughs> Kyneton? No, it's actually silent N. <laughs> Kyneton. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Like, yeah. Everybody says it differently. I know, so I know. <laughs> um, let's see, it. it's the Pommy in me, I think, just pronouncing everything that's in the word. Um, we've also given out grants to Redfern in New South Wales, um, St Helens, Tasmania, which is going to be our first program in Tasmania, so that's pretty exciting, and also um, Perth uh, WA, which is, again, our first program out that way. So we're really um, starting up choirs, and we have almost every state now in Australia, so that's it's really exciting for us to see that growing. Um, and, and I think that... Sorry, I was going to say, I think the no, unique no, no, thing you... is that it's open to all community members, regardless of whether yeah. or not they have singing experience or ability. 
That's right. So everybody's everybody's welcome. It doesn't matter what your background is and what your first language is. Everybody's welcome to come along. Um, and also, um, we really encourage the communities to apply for our grants. Uh, this year is our 10th anniversary. And um, we have 10 grants to give away this year. So, and it's also going to be judged on a first-come, first-served basis. Um, and we're hoping to get all the grants out before June this year so we can get the choirs up and running as soon as possible. Um, so communities can apply for grants up to $10,000. And um, we probably ask that they would partner with another group as well so that it can, we see a lot more success when um, there are a few different partnerships involved. So all the information for that is on our website, which is um, www.creativityaustralia.org.au. Um, so feel free to come and have a look, and um, all the information about the grants will be on there. Um, oh, hi, it's Judith here. Um, I'm wondering what kind of feedback do you get from I mean, when people get the grants? What do you hear back from people about what happens? Um, well, I think the, the people who get the grants go into a 12-month mentoring process, um, which has been kind of like something new for us. So as we as we go along with this process, we're finding that we're getting a lot more um, success with the committees that are building. And um, from the start, I think people are embracing and we're getting great feedback from the committees who are um, really enjoying engaging with their community. And um, and, and yeah, do you hear from community? <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> Do you hear from communities as well in some way um, how how they experience the choirs? Yes, we do. We have so we we're very big on social media, so we we do engage with our social media and we um, try and visit the choirs once they're up and running, and um, we we'll always kind of get feedback in that sense. So we're always trying to better the programs and um, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. just make sure that we're we're doing the best for for the communities involved. Cool. And I think the other the other uh, key thing here is that you know we know that many mental health support services, especially in in rural areas, might not have the funding or might not be able to, you know, um, have some 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 self care and self sort of help for people living in those areas. And there's an opportunity for a group or a group or a community group who might want to get together. I notice you've given some to the UFS dispensary in Ballarat. So there's an opportunity there to, um, you know, create a positive impact in those communities through the power of, um, of music. That's it. And we do find that there are a lot of corporate organisations that really enjoy getting involved and have it, it really um, kind of promotes their engagement in the community as well. It's something that they get excited about and obviously everybody likes to get together and have a good thing, but I think for them it's more about um, we have a wish list program. So within the choir every, um, every week the choir get together and um, they can make wishes from one another. So say somebody needs help with a a resume or um, they would like to find a job somewhere, they can ask for other members of the choir to help. Uh, Even just having somebody to walk to the train station with, they can ask, you know, and and those wishes get granted. And and then they all get together at the end of the evening and have supper. So it's it's kind of more than just a choir. It's it's a real sense of community spirit. It's, It's quite amazing, really. And, and I think you mentioned that the the ten the, the further ten choirs expected to launch by mid twenty nine. What would be what would it look like for Creativity Australia, I guess, in the next sort of twelve months in terms of this um, this uh, inclusive community choirs program? Are you hoping yeah. to, 
you know, keep building it because I know One Voice at the moment has over 600 choir members aged 9 to 90 years old <laughs> in 21 volunteer-led choirs across Australia. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think um, for us our goal is to have 40 choirs by 2020, the end of 2020. Um, and that kind of means for us that we'll be bringing on more mentors um, to mentor the new choirs and the committees. Um, and also it's good for the, the choirs who have already set up um, their own like social franchise choirs where they, they are getting the grants. Um, the, the committees are also helping other new committees. So not only are they helping like, their own community, but they're also helping other communities around Australia. So it's a real, you know, kind of like national... Um, thing to kind of see this grow and grow. So it's, it's hugely exciting for us and, of course, a, a challenge, but um, it's something that we're all very passionate about um, and, and are excited about it succeeding. Yeah, just the thought of it is kind of wonderful, just people mm. singing all around yeah. Australia. <laughs> I yeah. know. Don't you, don't you love it? Do you, do you ever do a hook-up <laughs> from people from different places and get them all we singing? Should, we should do something in the centre, shouldn't we? We should get everybody mm. all in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And have we, we do actually, we had a big concert for our 10th anniversary in uh, December, so a lot of the Melbourne choirs got together for that. Um and um, we do sometimes have like video hookups for other choirs too. Um, but yeah, maybe, I don't know, 2020, maybe that's the year that we all get together. <laughs> yeah, 40 choirs. And now, uh, and I think, <laughs> um, you, you mentioned that the, the, the 10 further, um, seed funding grants, uh, have started. Uh, and yeah. they are open until the 30th of June and people can go to creativityaustralia.org.au forward slash choirs forward slash start. That's right. They're all there. Um, hopefully, we'll be giving out the grants by June. So the program, we're, we're hoping to be get them launched by the end of next, uh, this year. Yep. Well, Lydia, thank you very much for giving us a bit of an insight into this program. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, the fact that, uh, I think Tanya de Jong said it as well, that it has been scientifically proven that uh, singing makes people happier, healthier, smarter and more creative. And, it you know, does, people yeah. can come together in song. Amazing. Thank you, <laughs> Thank Lydia. Thank you so much for having us. And that was um, Lydia from Creativity Australia. I just lost my place there because I was looking at playing a choir song while we're <laughs> back soon. Good idea.
bit of Kumbaya by the Soweto Gospel Choir there. That was really a beautiful um, piece of choir music. Thanks, Dean. That's great. Um, so last year, um, I think Dean and I, when it was probably before you joined the Wednesday breakfast, but I had a great opportunity. I went to a conference called New Geographies. It's a mouthful. New Geographies of Global Inequalities and Social Justice. <laughs> so, but how excited am I about, you know, social justice? And equality and digging into inequalities. And I met a lot of different people there doing lots of different kinds of research. And one of the pieces of research that um, really inspired me was by Dr. Sharon McLennan, who was a lecturer at the School of People. Isn't that good? School of People. School of People. And We're going to need a lot of those as we go forward. <laughs> environment and Planning at Massey University in New Zealand. And she was conducting research on Cuban medical cooperation and how that contributes to health and development in the Pacific. Now, when I spoke to her last year, she was just getting engaged in this project. So I'd like to kind of refresh what that's about. Because so often we hear about um, Médecins Sans Frontières, right? Mm. We, they, they really get a high profile. We don't hear as much about the Cuban doctors that go out and help, uh, you know, in countries around the world. And also, I think we should follow up this year, too, and just see how that's all going. But right now, let's just uh, head back to, to March last year and uh, hear um, from Sharon. And I, I, asked by, I started by asking her how she became interested. I was a nurse before I became a lecturer in development studies. I'm doing voluntary work in Central America, so I've always had an interest in global health. And when I did my master's research many years ago, I was looking at medical volunteers in Central America and I came across this idea that there were Cuban doctors. I had no idea that Cuban was sending doctors overseas. End of 2016, I was in a conference in Wellington, New Zealand. We had a panel there of Latin American ambassadors to New Zealand. They were asked to talk about the links between their country and New Zealand and the wider Pacific. And most of them got up and talked about trade and economic links and so forth. And the Cuban got, ambassador got up and quite informally started talking about medical aid and how many doctors the Cuba was sending into the Pacific. And a light bulb kind of went in my head. I'm like, goodness, there's Cuban doctors in the Pacific. I need to know more about this. And this funding round was coming up. I decided I would put an application in. I was successful. Are there many Cuban doctors working in the Pacific? Not necessarily in terms of numbers, but in terms of the influence and proportion in, within the medical profession in, in the Pacific Islands. So, so initially they uh, started in Timor-Leste. After the Civil War, there were something like 46 doctors in the entire country. And within a few years, the Cuban doctors coming in tripled the number of doctors in the country. Um, and they obviously had a big influence on the rebuilding of the health system in Timor. From about the mid-2000s, Cuba also started negotiating agreements with other Pacific Island countries. And also we have Pacific Island students training at a medical school in Cuba. So the program is active in Tuvalu, Fiji, Solomon Islands, Kiribati, Nauru and others. While the numbers aren't huge, some places maybe only two or three Cuban doctors, maybe a dozen medical students. And some places they're much larger. In Solomon Islands, we've got over 100 medical students gone to Cuba. But when you think about the size of Pacific Island countries, those fortunately that's quite a large number of doctors who are either Cuban or trained in Cuba and coming back 
So people who live in the, those specific islands are invited to, to go to Cuba to train as doctors. Yes, so the Cuban government works alongside uh, the Pacific Island governments and comes to an agreement as to what, the, what exactly is going to be in the program. Pacific Island students who go to Cuba, they spend a year doing Spanish language training and pre-med, and then they spend six years as a medical student in Cuba, and then they come back to work in their home communities in the Pacific. Well, six years is what it would take a, a doctor to train in Australia as well, so it's pretty uh, vigorous and intensive training. It is. It is intensive training, and it's very difficult. Um, you, these students, they get a full scholarship to go to Cuba, so they don't pay their airfares there, they don't pay any tuition fees, they get uh, a board and, and food, so they don't pay anything, but they don't get to come home. So they spend seven years away from home to be able to do this. And they do it in a second language. And they learn a second language to be able to do it. They learn Spanish and they become you know, fluent in medical Spanish, which I imagine is quite a challenge. Indeed. And, uh, when, and when they do come back, when they finish their training... They come back home and they have to do an internship. Uh, most of them are six months to a year in Fiji or in their home country uh, doing a bit of extra training, a bit of bridging to uh, get them uh, able to work within their home context. Um, at the moment, the first graduates have only come back in the last two or three years, so we'll, we'll see what impact that they have. There's been some criticism. We're very aware that um, some of the doctors... Cuban-trained doctors have been criticised for having language issues. As you say, if you train in Spanish, then your medical, your medical training is in Spanish, then you have difficulty sometimes communicating in, in English or in, in your local language about medical issues. Um, and there's also been some concerns about this level of skills, um, which is being addressed through the internship programme, but it's something that I'm quite interested in exploring in this research as well. Right. And what motivates Cuba? because it's quite a, um, I mean, I think you said in your presentation there were more Cuban doctors than the doctors from Médecins Sans Frontières. There, um, Cuba sends more actual doctors, personnel, to developing countries. The Médecins Sans Frontières, the Red Cross and UNICEF. So those three major organizations do have some doctors on the ground, but there are more Cuban doctors working in the developing world. Than, than from those organisations. So that, when you say the developing world, that's beyond the Pacific, of course. Yes, so there's you know, some thousands working, particularly in, um, in Latin America. Obviously, that's, that's uh, Cuba's region of interest. Um, but there are Cuban doctors across places in Africa, um, Middle East, all around the world. 50,000 of them around the world at the moment. That's amazing. So what's the motivation? What drives Cuba to do this, to provide this service? A sense of solidarity, I think. Uh, when Cuba, I mean, with the Cuban Revolution, obviously there was this um, anti-colonial sentiment of, you know, of becoming an independent nation, not being dependent on others. And as time has gone on, they've wanted to share that with, with the rest of the world. And not in a revolutionary way, although perhaps initially it was, but in a manner of being countries of the global south together, supporting each other. So there's always some sort of reciprocity in, in the agreements. For some countries, there's a financial incentive. For others, um, it may be more political and international institutions. What do you mean by the global south? It's a bit of a catch-all term for developing countries. So it's countries that are not part of the 
global north. So the global north is uh, North America, uh, Northern Europe, um, and ironically included in that is Australia and New Zealand as richer countries. And, and then there's the rest of the world, which are predominantly located in, in the Southern Hemisphere, so which is why we're call, why called the Global South. It's not a very geographically accurate term, but it's one that's commonly used. So now with your new project that you, you're just starting, how long is it going to go? Three years. Three more years. The first year I'll be concentrating on learning more about the Cuban side of things. I'll be going to Cuba, learning about... Um, Cuban approach to health, the Cuban approach to development, um, and talking to medical students who are already in Cuba, uh, Pacific Island students in Cuba. And then the second year I will be looking to do case studies in Kiribati and Solomon Islands um, where there are either Cuban doctors present or Cuban uh, medical trained doctors. So students from those countries have come back already and are practicing, so I would like to follow them up. And what do you hope to find out? Like, I imagine you have an overall objective for this research. What is it you're wanting to know? Broadly, I'm really interested in the impact of the program. I mean, when you're talking about places where uh, Cuban doctors and Cuban-trained doctors have doubled the number of doctors in a the country, there's, some, there's going to be some sort of impact. So I'm, look, I'm interested in the impact on health, but I'm also interested in the way in which the Cuban model, which is quite different to the Western model of health, relates to Pacific ideas about health and health care and how it relates to health care systems already present in those countries. How is the Cuban system different? The Cuban system is premised on the idea that health is a right and that, doc- that medicine is a service. So rather than... Uh, doctors aren't, don't do private practice in Cuba, for example, which has been criticised by some, but this is the way that they're trained, that medicine is a service and that you, you work with your community. That's what you do as a doctor. And, and healthcare is a right. Everybody should be able to have access to good health services free at no cost. Um, and this is quite different to the kind of model of healthcare we have here, which is more of a commodity, which is something that you pay for and that the doctor receives significant payment for. And so this is quite quite different to to the way in which you know most of us. I have experienced healthcare, and I think the way in which it's supported through uh, Australian and New Zealand aid programs um, into the Pacific as well. And that was Dr. Sharon McLennan, a lecturer in the School of People, Environment and Planning at Massey University in New Zealand. And what a, a, a both a complex project, but a fascinating project. Absolutely, yeah. No, it sounds like a huge amount of commitment, but such follow-through, such yes. a culture to be in. Yeah, so yeah, that would be great to, to find out more how she's going. And, and the idea behind universal healthcare and free education being fundamental to Castro's project, it's amazing, isn't it, how health for us in mm. sort of our Western world, is a commodity, as you yes. mentioned. But yes. uh, for them, it, it's, it's, it's a right, right. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was just having a quick look. Um, since you spoke, the Brazilian doctors, sorry, the Cuban doctors who were in Brazil, uh, as of November last year, um, they were ordered by the government to end their participation in that program because of our... Friend. The election, election yeah, of Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro. Yeah. who was going so. out to get the lefties and the indigenous mm. peoples mm. and uh, yeah. promoting the army. It's a very worrying. We, we did very actually, scary climate, yeah. And we did have a, an we interview did have about, that about that last yeah. year when he got elected, yeah.
was the beautiful sound of Oitha, and the song was Sister Girl, and that came out last year, and uh, really fabulous, yeah, fabulous music, just going from strength to strength there. 
Well, I'm just wondering, um, Idwin and Dane, whether you have heard much about the Montara oil spill at all. Does that ring no, a bell? No, not a lot. N- not until I read about it at 6 o'clock this morning. <laughs> and to be honest with you, it's ridiculous that um, none of us know about it. Yeah. And it's happened in Australia. Yeah, in the Australian waters. Waters, yeah. For sure. So just to, to put people in the picture, the Montara wellhead is located in Australian waters. So just imagine your map of Australia now. Mm-hmm. 685 kilometres west of Darwin, 630 kilometres northeast of Broome. So we're up in that mm. area. And right. just 250 kilometres southeast of Indonesia, which becomes significant because it's Ooh. actually closer to Indonesia. Mm. So on uh, August 21st, 2009, a blowout occurred at the H1 well, and it caused uncontrolled release of oil and gas into the Timor Sea for 74 days. Wow. Estimates of how much oil was released vary from the oil company PTTEP. Mm. Uh, their estimate, 400 barrels a day, to Geoscience Australia's estimate of 2,000 barrels a day. But as you've just shown, we mm-hmm. really haven't heard a lot about it. So Theo Kartawajaya did an analysis of the media coverage of the mm-hmm. Montara oil spill for his master's thesis at Curtin University. And his supervisor, he and his supervisor, Dr. Thor Kerr, published an article entitled The Missing Stories from the Montara Oil Spill Media Coverage. So we're going to hear from Thor later. But first of all, I'd just like to hear from Theo, who I spoke to yesterday. And I started by asking him how he became interested in doing this research for his master's thesis. This is the the biggest oil spill in Australian history, and I have never heard of it. A lot of Indonesians are affected, and I have never heard of it. It's interesting from the media perspective because there are um, publications on it. You found some media, but but you thought there should be more? Yes, I do think there should be more coverage. And so how did you decide to investigate? What did you do? I decided that I would study the news articles, media from Indonesia and three different media from Australia, the news articles that available online. And what were the publications from Australia that you looked at? From Australia, I looked into the Australian, the West Australian and AFR, um, the Australian Financial Review. And what about from Indonesia? And from Indonesia, I took Compass, which have the same kind of position as the Australian. Then I have Business Indonesia, which have the a similar position with the AFR. The last one I use Postcoupang, the local newspaper from the area affected by the oil spill. So, so three publications from Australia and three publications from Indonesia that were comparable. Yes. What did you find were the gaps in the coverage? What was missing? Important things, probably this person. This person only mentioned in the beginning of Australian publication, mentioned briefly how quick the AMSA reacted on the case. And the, what, the AMSA was the Australian organization that responded uh, to the spill? Yes. For Australian Marine Safety Authority. 
what kind of dispersants they are using. What did they find out about the dispersants? A cocktail made out of different dispersants, and two of them are not approved for use, actually. Made the oil more toxic. Is that is that what you found? Yes. As Helen Media only mentioned dispersants in the beginning to show how fast AMSA reacted to the situation. Yes. But then they never actually reported about the dispersants ever again. So very limited uh, information about the toxicity, well, hardly any, really. That was one of the biggest differences you found between the Indonesian reporting and the Australian reporting? Australian mainly blaming the whole thing on PTTEP oil company. For the whole thing to happen, you have to question how you should acknowledge that there is a high chance the government fail at something. Government failure, I guess, to monitor what that uh, oil rig was doing and whether they had adequate safety precautions in place. Yes, Australian media put a lot of blame on the Thai company. They don't want anything to do with this. No one wants to take responsibility for what happened. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they want someone else to take responsibility for what happened. Yes. And ultimately, the blame falls upon PTTEP, the Thai company. There are no compensation for the people who is affected. Who were the people affected? Mainly fishermen and the civet farmers. Traditional fishermen, they don't get any decent catch after that, and the civet farmers, which eight years after the whole thing, they are fighting the oil company in in Australian federal court. And um, that's Theo Katwajaya, who completed his study last year, and uh, he told me he's keeping an eye on the progress of the class action case, which I think is going to be heard in June and July this year, and I hope the seaweed farmers do get compensated. It's, it was quite devastating. And you, if you're interested in, in what happened, I think there's um, a documentary that's been made, although I don't know how accessible it is, called Crude Injustice, which actually got out and um, talked to people in, that, in the area. But now uh, we have uh, Thor, Thor Kerr on the phone, Dr. Thor Kerr. Thor, are you there? Good morning, Judith. Good morning. And, you know, we have to acknowledge and thank you for getting up so very early in Perth. Five o'clock, is that right? It is five o'clock here. It's still <laughs> dark, but it's going to be a hot day, so it's good to be up early. <laughs> Great. And I think you're going to go for a swim, too. That's right. Yeah, I'm going for a swim down at Fremantle after this. So thanks for getting me up and out to the beach. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we really appreciate it. So, Thor, you were the supervisor of Theo's um, master's thesis. I'm wondering, how did you feel when Theo told you he wanted to do his master's thesis on this topic? How did you feel as a supervisor? I thought it was a, a wonderful opportunity because it had been um, it, had, it had been reported in the media, but um, often this kind of story is, is fascinating because it's 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 a story about an environmental disaster that's um, remote from you know any kind of normal community that would um, perhaps inform either social media debate or local media debate about the actual disaster and extent of the, the disaster but because it was out at sea um, the 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 way the story was reported would be first of all kind of controlled by the series of different oil companies that own the rig um, 
but also it was right on that borderline or halfway between Indonesia and Australia. So it was this beautiful opportunity to look at how the media in the two countries, different types of media, um, would deal with an environmental disaster like that. We don't often get that kind of opportunity and Tio was the right person to do it because he's fluent in both languages and has uh, is driven by a social justice agenda. So from the outset, it looked like it was going to be a good project. Yes, indeed. And so coming now to the, the art, your article in the conversation, um, one of the things that you're really concerned about is the impact of poor media coverage on environmental disasters like this one. So what, what is the impact when we don't get good media coverage? Well, I think the the impact, I guess, well, from from an Australian perspective, when we look at decisions made in the in in that area in that zone between um, the north northwest of Australia and um, Timor or or the kind of the the eastern islands of Indonesia, um, we often don't have a lot of coverage, or the the, the public isn't really informed about um, often about decisions made by government or policies made by government, let alone by by private companies. Um, however, the effects of what happens in terms of environmental um, risks and damages and also in terms of the economics of such projects um, does affect people living in those communities. And those communities, I guess, in a way, they're, they're, they're in a way artificially divided between the, the national borders of Indonesia and Australia, but for thousands of years, there, obviously, there were communities moving around those spaces with no, um, with no maritime border. Um, so in a way, the, the, the thousands of islands of Indonesia and thousands of islands of Western Australia, they kind of meet in, our, in and around this region. Um, so it's a really, for me, it's an interesting opportunity for, uh, for communities in both countries to think about um, themselves as a greater community beyond a kind of a national community when, when thinking yes. about uh, how decisions are made and policies are made up there. Yeah, and of course it's highly relevant in Australia as we now approach uh, the possibility of drilling in the Great Australian Bight, for example, and uh, with people not really knowing much about what happened in the Montara oil spill or the idea that seems to be perpetuated, well, it was all contained very quickly and there weren't really many problems, which you see on the company's website. And uh, when we don't have that kind of information, it becomes more difficult to make policy decisions for the the community to participate in them. Exactly. I think we know that that government or any regulatory body needs community pressure to to function well. I think this has come through the bank the recent royal yes. commission on, on banking um, so with the oil industry you know news on things going wrong or things not working um, properly or causing great environmental risk we really rely on often I, I guess on oil, oil rig workers themselves maybe disaffected employees or visiting um, regulators but because it's the oil industry it, it tends to be a, a very closed shop um, oil workers, have um, quite precarious contracts. They're moving between different rigs and different companies all the time. Um, and I guess it really speaks to our, our kind of a culture that within the oil industry, but I guess Australia in, in general, of um, the idea being the main goal is to be able to extract some kind of mineral or some kind of resource and um, make money from it and not think too much about the environmental or community consequences unless there's, you know, unless there's 
pressure to do so. Yes, and um, the invisibility, as you say, uh, particularly in more rural, I mean, even in Australia, in more rural areas, you know, we, we don't actually, it's not in our face necessarily, unless you get out there, what is actually going on. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is why we see quite a few oil oil rig disasters and there have been some huge um, disasters in the last few decades. Um, I think they're partly a result of that. You know, greater risks can be taken, costs can be cut. Um, the people working in the business may have moved on to another project who may make the risky decisions. Yes, and I think there was some evidence from your media analysis that uh, um, the company, PTTEP, was a bit strapped for cash um, and uh, opening up the possibility of cutting corners. But ultimately, their drilling in Australian waters had to be approved by Australia, by NOPSA, uh, the organization at that time, now NOPSEMA. Yeah, and it's interesting. What's fascinating for me in terms of even how we think about media coverage is that that project before it was sold to PTT, it was only sold to PTT EP a few months before the disaster. Oh, really? Uh, so it's but, not PTT EP at all in some ways? In, in, well, in some ways, when we think about the risk, I mean, it, it came up as a um, as a kind of a speculative oil investment out of Perth um, many years before that, and and was driven very much and celebrated in the media as you know as a kind of a Perth-based initiative or an Australian initiative celebrated by um, really by our government so it's an Australian initiative and the problems based uh, uh, blamed on a Thai company yeah that's exactly the kind of the it's easy to blame a foreigner um, God it's kind of a you know a narrative that's carried on by all all media in all countries and I guess this is what we'd like to, to challenge and or at least examine um, at what moment does does a disaster shift from being a kind of celebration of a an economic initiative within a country to being um, blamed on, you know, on, on foreigners, the foreigners yes. are added Well, you know, we're, we're going to have to wind it up there, Thor, but uh, because we, we have one more um, guest coming on. But I think we'll probably be in touch again because beyond um, your paper on the media coverage, there's a lot more to explore, I think, around the Montara issue and also to inform ourselves better about, you know, what kinds of decisions we should be making about proposals, um, you know, to drill in, in the sea, deep sea oil drilling, and also, you know, how our regulator is protecting us or not. Okay, I look forward to that opportunity. Thanks, thanks Judith and, and Dean. And thanks, Tho. Yeah, great to have you on, and thank you so much, and do enjoy your swim. I will. Thank you so much. Okay, have a lovely day. Thank okay. you. Bye. Bye. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Friday the 1st of March at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 9419 8377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website 3cr.org.au forward slash people So in the news this week we also have um, the Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network which has just announced two new tenders targeting social isolation and uh, loneliness and the social and health impacts of this. Uh, we have Jesse, the coordinator of this program, in the studio here today to talk to us. Good morning, Jesse. Hey, good morning. Good morning. So, Northwestern Primary Health, uh, sorry, Melbourne Primary Health is a federal initiative with the aim to improve health of the community on a local, state and federal level. 
Could you just give us like a bit of background of your organisation? Sure. Um, so, Northwest Melbourne PHN. Um, sorry about that. Uh, so, yeah, as you said, our um, kind of remit is to, I guess, increase effectiveness and efficiency of services. Um, what that really means is it's about improving health outcomes for our community, mm-hmm. um, particularly um, vulnerable populations within our community. So, our region, kind of from Melbourne CBD, stretches mm-hmm. west to Werribee and Backers Marsh and north kind of out to um, Gisborne area, mm-hmm. Masson and Ranges. Um, so that takes in a really diverse uh, part definitely, of Melbourne, definitely. got inner city areas, regional areas and some of the fastest growing suburbs. Definitely, definitely. And these two new tenders, I have to say, there's a lot of um, programs and tenders mm-hmm. that come out of your organisation, but these two new tenders are targeted towards people facing social isolation. And um, it kind of comes not off the back of, but is influenced by this Australian Loneliness Report that's come out recently. Is that correct? Um, so, look, that's one of the things that mm-hmm. kind of is in the um, public eye at the moment. There was a report by Swinburne Uni and the Australian Psychological Society kind of where they went out and uh, did a large survey, mm-hmm. I think the largest survey of its kind in Australia, and found that uh, like one in four Australians are lonely. Um, which is a bit of a startling uh, yeah, statistic. Um, look, that comes on top of some other research we've been doing, and I think uh, there's a growing uh, recognition of the impact of things like loneliness and social isolation upon individuals individuals, and right across our community it doesn't really discriminate and right yeah. across age groups too because yeah. you just yeah. imagine elderly people being lonely well that was one of the things I was going to bring up um, definitely is this idea of I suppose could you summarise why loneliness is so dangerous uh, for an individual and then kind of who who this this kind of report and tenders are kind of seeking out to target sure so I'm not sure we really have the answer mm-hmm. to that question mm-hmm. sure but loneliness and social isolation correlate with um, uh, significant risk factors. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's akin to obesity, smoking, some of the kind of biggest focuses of public health mm-hmm. over the last, over many decades. So really starting to recognise this, uh, like the loneliness report you've mm-hmm. cited um, identifies that it, there's a greater correlation with depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. and that works both ways, actually. Yeah, oh, um, which okay. Which is interesting. Um, so we're kind of facing this. The, I guess the data isn't where you might like it in terms of being able to say if it's getting worse historically, yep, but yep. there's a growing recognition that it's a problem and it affects people's health. Definitely, and I thought, well, with... With the name to to it, like loneliness, yeah. socialisation, that that's a label, that's recognition, that's greater awareness. Um, the the tenders identify loneliness as a mental and social issue, and kind of, oh sorry, health, I should say, yeah. so, sort of issue. Can you kind of extend this and kind of say what the implications are? Uh, you've you've touched on it, sure, but as a social as well as a health, kind of the the difference between. Sure. So over the last twelve months, we've done our own research and mm-hmm. spoken to people within our community, and kind of started particularly speaking to people um, experiencing ill health mm-hmm. and um, understanding their health journey. And what we found was there were a lot of common experiences across a pretty diverse group. 
one of the things that uh, came up commonly was that based on the kind of changes in their lifestyle mm. that they were experiencing due to their health, they felt socially isolated, mm. a bit trapped, um, their lifestyle changed and didn't... Um, and this meant kind of a feeling of loneliness. Um, maybe they were a carer for a partner who was also sick and, right. like, their time was spent doing this and that kind of initiated so it kind continue of to add to it's almost like a build-up of pressure yeah. so i guess as a health and social issue um this isn't necessarily something that can be fixed by a doctor or a mm. hospital mm-hmm. but it's about kind of our communities and the way that we find fulfillment in life and the how we might help people or definitely or work with people rather is doing some of the things that a doctor can't prescribe that a pharmacist will mm. will provide you. Yeah. Mm. Well, specifically touching so, on it, uh, the tenders that your program's offering, yeah. um, uh, $500,000, valued mm-hmm. at $500,000 over f- two years. Um, how will these function? What does $500,000 quantify in goals and services? Sure. So, look, this is a new area. So what we're asking for are innovative responses okay. to the... Uh, request for tender that we've put out and mm-hmm. um, it's very broad it's a broad problem but what we want to see are locally relevant responses that meet the the needs of identified cohorts now what that mm-hmm. actually what that in english to? i guess <laughs> is that because it's such a pervasive problem mm-hmm. people need um People need solutions that different meet solutions. their needs. An older mm. person is going to need something different from a younger person. And while there's a lot out there mm-hmm. currently and there's a lot of really good work, there's gaps in the system. So people who are feeling lonely and socially isolated aren't necessarily out, going out there to find mm. And in your services. region, it, it, it encompasses people from different um, worlds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the way that a, an African migrant who's grown up in a country where totalitarian rule is what they know, sure. for some of them it was fine being lonely, but then all of a sudden they get to a certain age group, they're in a different country. How do they reach mm. out to those services? As well as, oh, yeah, Judith, do you have a question? No, no, well, I'm just curious about how much it's a, it's a cultural issue because there are um, you know, uh, uh, you talked about uh, mm. Africa, but there are countries in which the group is, is totally important where people have, you know are in each and out of each other's houses regularly, you know, taking food over and doing things like that mm. and uh, I, I, how, I mean, is it um, I'm wondering, there's all this, these loneliness studies we're hearing here mm-hmm. also in the UK, I think is this something about Anglo-Saxon influenced countries or are you finding it more broadly? Look, I'm, I'm not really sure it certainly is about kind of the world that we're currently living in Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, but while that might be a part that may no no, that that may may be a part of it Um, there's a lot of changes in how people live how they interact with each other Mm. Um, we're building new suburbs and kind of infrastructure is slowly reaching them that 
can impact uh, how people kind of interact with one another and mm. and the sense of meaning people are living longer kind of what what, are, what do they do after their work yeah, life? People are sure. travelling longer to get to work. They, they lose friends yeah. as they get older. So, yeah, those, those things certainly do. Mm. Yeah. And so I suppose these tenders are looking towards building social connectedness on different levels. And so I think, as you said, um, Judith, it would be factors like culture, but generational, you know, where you're living at the time and stuff like that. Um, have there any been any funky ideas that have come forth thus far, or are you looking for them still, or what's Look, happening? The the tender's open at the moment, so there's a limit to kind of how much I can talk about <laughs> about responses. Yeah, ideas, um, <laughs> but th- there are some great uh, great things going on in the mm-hmm. community phone lines, um, community lunches, um, things that are happening at council level, things that are happening at different levels, and this is an opportunity to, I guess have a good impact on hmm. like in two areas well, and we we're quite excited choir. about it. Yeah, we yeah. heard about choirs earlier in the show. Is another I mean, as it's a, public a perfect connection. example, people yeah. getting together, yeah. doing something mm. that they enjoy. Mm. Yeah. And so I suppose, is the, are these tenders open for much longer? Are they open to the general public or to... So open to well? organisations. Right, uh, okay. Uh, so they are available on our via our website, mm-hmm. which is nwmphn.org.au, and the close date is the 25th of February. Right, okay, so they still have, we still have a month to get it. Definitely. Well, if you're coming up with any ideas, that'd be absolutely fantastic. These tenders sound really quite exciting, um, especially targeting something that's not really been brought up before in a lot of ways. Um, with loneliness, I don't know if you agree, Jesse. But thank you so much for coming on the show and talking thank to you. us. Uh, we might follow you up after February the 25th and hear mm-hmm. some of the funky ideas, <laughs> if that works. Um, happy to. But yeah, thank you so much for coming in. All right, thank you. Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February the 21st to March the 8th at Cinema Nova. Tickets from transitionsfilmfestival.com. A 3CR supporter. And we uh, really want to thank, well, we always want to thank our guests this morning. So, um, Starting off uh, the top, we had Greg Danaham with the Yarra Drug Health Forum and Pill Testing. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, what else did we have? Uh, well, uh, um, yeah. At 7.30, we had Lydia Griffiths. Uh, sorry, Judith, I'm just doing a little no, bit of a go, run go, go. I've got fine. this. Uh, <laughs> we also had some voices from Cuba at 7.45. Which yeah, was Sharon, Dr. Sharon McLennan. Dr. Yeah, Sharon McLennan. About the, the Cuban doctors and their work in the Pacific and other developing countries. Uh, we had uh, Theo... Yeah, no, 8 o'clock we had Theo and Thor talking about yes. um, an amazing... And, and Thor like joining us say, from Perth. Yeah, yeah, Thor. I mean, I really want to yeah, say about Thor coming in at, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning in Perth. And also he's lecturer at Curtin University in the School of Media, Culture, Creative Arts. And he's also worked as a journalist. So I guess working as a journalist with that history, you're somewhat sympathetic when someone calls you and says... 
can you come on at uh, five in the morning? <laughs> Definitely. Um, we just finished up with Joey, uh, sorry, Jesse, also from the Northwestern Melbourne, uh, sorry, Melbourne Primary Health Network. Thank you so much for coming on, Jesse. Sorry about the name stuff up. Um, finishing off the show, Dean and Judith. Uh, Will and I have been finishing with something that's been going on, that's been cool in our in our world. So I suppose um, I'd like to say. Oh, thank you for music this week. I've rediscovered the Peter Pan film soundtrack, and it's great. Go listen to it, definitely. How about you, Judith and Dean? Well, I've been reading books, and I'm so excited. I've read two books in the last two weeks. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so one was about um, uh, the story of uh, the autobiography of a a Palestinian woman, a refugee, and really survival in the camps in Lebanon, and uh, yeah, great. And I'm thankful for Dr. T. H. G. Grove, Director of of Hospital Services at Barrow Granath Hospital, for putting the choir together and music. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And with that, we'll be leaving. Uh, Next up, stick together. Yes. <laughs> As it always is. Let's give me a moment. I always get this. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.